Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi and welcome to the Deliciously Ella podcast with me, Ella Mills. I am afraid for the second week running we are missing my co-host. Life at Deliciously Ella HQ at the moment is a bit of a joke with how busy it is. All good busy, um, but it seems never, ever, ever to stop right now. And um, Matthew very much is caught in the cycle of that, but I'm thrilled to say he will be with us again next week. And before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let everyone know about Deliciously Ella Live, which is coming this May um, and into June. So we're going to be coming to eight different cities around the UK and Ireland, places like Manchester, Leeds, Dublin, Edinburgh, London, Hove, lots of different places. And each event's going to have a special guest and an expert in anything from finding peace and happiness to managing our stress levels, getting to grips with healthy eating, what healthy eating really means, how to actually do it, looking at gut health and the way the gut interacts with the brain and things like making true, lasting, genuinely sustainable changes in our lives by breaking negative cycles and becoming who we really want to be. So, so much to talk about. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. I've put all the details, the cities, the dates, the guests, the titles in the show notes below and hope to see you there. So, Moving on to today's episode, so many of us are living very urban lives. Um, We're now spending the majority of our time indoors at our desks, probably eyes glued to a screen. And it subsequently means that we're spending increasingly little time outdoors in nature. Today's episode explores whether that actually matters. Does our cultural move away from the natural world impact on our mental, emotional and spiritual well-being? Does it really change things in our brains? And what does the science actually say about it? Our guest today is the acclaimed journalist Lucy Jones, who's been exploring exactly this in her book, Losing Eden. Looking at the most recent studies on our relationship with nature and how it interacts with human biology, neuroscience and psychology. So welcome, Lucy. (laughs) Thanks so much, Ella. I'm thrilled to be here. So I guess before we get started, I am just going to pick out a couple of stats from the book that really resonated with me, just to give a little bit of context to our episode. I knew that we were obviously distancing ourselves from nature, but I was kind of a little bit struck actually by some of these. I think the thing that struck me most was that in the UK at the moment, 75% of children aged 5 to 12 spend less time outdoors than prison inmates. And just for reference, prison inmates are required to spend at least one hour a day exercising in the open air under UN guidelines. And then following on from that, Right now, 84% of North Americans and 74% of Europeans live in urban areas. And we're currently spending between 1% and 5% of our time outdoors. So literally just like a teeny, teeny fraction. And that's obviously on the human side. Then in the kind of wildlife animal side, over the last 50 years, the population of mammals, birds, reptiles and fish across the world have fallen by 60%. And in 2007, the words acorn, magpie and buttercup were taken out of the Oxford Children's Dictionary in favour of words like broadband and cut and paste. It's really sad reading that. Mm, It Um, is, isn't it? Really sad, because those aren't niche things like a magpie or a buttercup or an acorn. I know, they're magical things. So yeah, so I think that gives a nice kind of 
context for us to start a conversation in terms of like quite how far we've moved away from nature. Exactly. And so you've said kind of your journey to explore this topic has taken you, you know, far and wide from conferences in Germany on the latest research to interviews with academics at the forefront of their fields to neuroscientists in California, microbiologists in Eastern Europe. I mean, what have you learned? <laughs> well, I think the kind of overarching thing that I've learned is that the evidence is robust and varied and that connecting with nature affects us kind of from our heads to our toes, our brains, our minds, our guts, our nervous system, our immune system. And even if we're not people who would consider ourselves outdoorsy, you know, some people just aren't that into nature. They might, you know, find their restoration elsewhere. What I found was that background nature in our urban areas is crucial for individual mental health and population health. At the beginning of my journey, I had a personal bias because I'd had a personal experience with nature that had helped in my recovery at a time of illness. But I also was, you know, a science journalist at the time and and I was just blown away over the last few years at, at this kind of quite new and emerging cutting-edge field of science that is aiming to empirically prove that this is something that we we can't do without, that it's not a luxury, that it's not an option, that it's not a frill. It's something that impacts our health in measurable and significant ways. And by overlooking it, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And was there anything in particular that stood out? Were there one or two facts that you learned where you thought, I, I can't quite believe it, that's insane, how actually just being outdoors could genuinely impact on my brain or my body to that extent? Yeah, I think, I mean, there were so many. There were so many things. And actually, at the beginning when I set out, I kind of thought there might be a silver bullet piece of evidence. You know, I, I kind of approached it as a kind of an inquiry and an investigation. And I wanted to find what's the mechanism by which connecting with nature affects our minds. But I started to realise that actually what was surprising was kind of the, the really wide variety of it. You know, it's a real, uh, as one academic put it to me, a club sandwich of effects. But just to drill down to a few surprising findings I had. So, as, as you said, many of us live in urban areas. And what I was really interested in at the beginning of my research was how walking through a park or a woodland could affect the brain. I'd, I'd had a period of mental ill health and addiction, and I found that in my recovery, I was very drawn to connecting with nature. So I was really fascinated to find out what, what was actually going on in my brain when I was walking uh, in nature. One of the things I found out was that if you're in a green space and then you move into a really busy, loud urban area, a study conducted in Edinburgh found that the time spent in the green space can actually act as a kind of buffer against that stress. So people in this study group who, who walked from a park to a busy street were found to have more activity in the brain associated with relaxation and calmness. And there are uh, myriad studies which support being in a green space allows us to recover from stress more quickly and more completely than in a built environment. So that's a kind of example of, 
you know, something that I may, I may have intuitively felt. Mm. You know, lots of us think, oh, you know, going by a beach or being in the countryside or in a wood, it feels good, doesn't it, in some yeah. way. But we don't really know what exactly is happening. So an interesting one as well about how one of the things we really focus on in here is how, like, there are so many small... I mean, as you said, everyone's pretty stressed. Like, our lives are really stressful this week for me. I feel like my diary is, like, schedulized to, like, to the minute. But it's really interesting how there are just those, like, teeny tiny little things that you can do that have such a big impact. And and actually what's interesting exactly is getting into that science on the fact that actually if you could do one call on a walk or listen to kind of one thing you need to listen to or take notes on or something then actually that will genuinely impact on your brain. It's not kind of wishy-washy. There's like, it actually will help protect your brain and that's going to help us against like basically the reality of life. Exactly. The evidence that I found about the nervous system was quite interesting because I think a lot of our kind of stress-related illnesses and conditions at the moment are related to an overactive sympathetic nervous system, which is when, you know, we're in flight or fight and we have more inflammation in the body which can lead to to illnesses and and depression and disease and studies show that being in nature activates the parasympathetic nervous system which is the kind of one in charge of all the rest and digest processes and crucially that allows our immune system to do to to do the work you know our bodies and our minds are connected with the earth and the natural world I think so much more than I I realise and I think that we overlook that. I was interested in that about how, as you said, like there's a little part of us that's kind of, I think, even as someone that lives in a city and I love living in a city, but like every time you go into the countryside, you kind of breathe and you think, oh my gosh, it like it feels so clean and it feels so nice. And you, I think you do sometimes just take the edge off a little bit. And it's interesting, you talked about the roots of all of this, about human connection to nature. And it goes back to like, you know, writing and kind of drawings and stuff from like the Byzantine Empire, medieval China, the Romans, Florence Nightingale. Like there's a human history is basically kind of littered with a connection between man and nature. Exactly. Um, and one of the, the things I write a lot about in Losing Eden is this concept of biophilia, which you might have heard a bit about recently because kind of biophilic cities are becoming quite interesting and biophilic architecture. And this is the idea that was popularised by the biologist Edward Wilson. The biophilia concept is Wilson's notion that humans have an innate and emotional affiliation to life. So us, for example, being drawn to going for a walk by the sea or even bringing a Christmas tree into our home or choosing a picture of blossom for our screensavers, um, Wilson argues, is an expression of an evolutionary need to connect with the natural world for cognitive, mental, emotional and spiritual development. And, you know, that kind of makes sense to me. But it all basically supports the idea that it's so nurturing to us. So nurturing, yeah. And also the flip side of that and something that when I set out on my journey, I, I went to the Arctic, to the Svalbard seed vault, and I went to this ancient forest in Poland. So the Svalbard seed vault is, do you know about it? No, it sounds so exotic and brilliant. It's amazing. It's this, but it's also kind of sad. So it's also called the Doomsday Vault, and um, not such positive now. <laughs> yeah, it kind of leers out of the Arctic tundra, which is just an incredibly beautiful place to be, and it's a safe hold for the world's seeds to safeguard the genetic diversity of seeds and plant life in case of 
climate change, nuclear war, um, apocalypse, ecological collapse. All the positive things. Oh, yeah, all the good things. So that felt to me like a symbol of our disconnection from the natural world, that we have to um, have this kind of weird doomsday vault in the Arctic to keep things safe because we can't seem to do it ourselves. And also I was going to this ancient forest in Poland, the oldest, the most primeval forest, which was being logged at the time. So I was writing all about as you say, why nature is nurturing and and the evidence which explains how and why it works. But I was also going to these kind of pretty depressing places. And as the years went by, I realised that, um, of course, the flip side to all this good news is, as you started the interview with, that our disconnection and, you know, the absence of these things, the you know they are all out there but we are we are losing we're overlooking the therapeutic potential of connecting with the natural world and actually as i continued researching and writing there seemed to me like a real urgency and a real i almost felt kind of panicked by looking around and seeing you know street trees being removed in in sheffield and you know the fact that the children in our society aren't getting opportunities to play outside. You know, I'm the same. I get sucked into my screen and, and I'm inside most of the time, like, like we all are. But I think that there's an imperative for us as a society to consider this evidence and to to realise that we need the natural world, not just because it supports our lives, but, you know, for our sanity. But then interestingly as well, because it, it really made me think about it when I was looking at it again this morning, is that obviously we're also like at a really serious issue um, in terms of climate change as it stands. And that's obviously like a fundamental conversation that's happening all around the world at the moment. But part of me wondered, as I was thinking about this and as I was thinking about this topic, is whether that disconnection is really not helping our sense of genuine urgency to change the way that we're living in order to protect it, because it's the desire to protect it becomes harder the further removed something feels from us and obviously I'm sure there's no one in the world you know well I'm sure there are some people unfortunately but I think if we went out onto the street now most people say yep let's stop climate change but most of us aren't actually taking the actions that we need to do that and we're seeing that we're protesting but we're not necessarily changing our lives interestingly and I want to touch on that and kind of that idea of like eco-anxiety as well because I think it's really interesting as you start to get into the science of this and you realise like, okay, wait, like actually just being outside and not, you know, going on a huge hike and not going to like the middle of nowhere, but like literally just going to like a park in a city or like just going outside of a city for a day and going on a walk, like literally just half an hour even just like getting outside has such a huge impact on us. And it's it's very, you know, it's, it's really kind of scientifically back now, both mentally and physically. And... But then we're getting this kind of sense of like genuine panic about the fact that this is going and it's going at such an extraordinarily rapid rate. I think so. I think you said in in the UK, it's in the last eighty years we've lost half of our ancient woodlands, and now one in ten species in this country are now facing extinction, which is just kind of completely terrifying stats. So we're not appreciating it, but we're equally kind of completely petrified about losing it. Exactly. I think I think your point kind of gets to like the core of the matter and and you know shows how connected all these things are that you know we are in a climate emergency in a nature emergency partly because of our disconnection you know because we kind of think that we're separate from the land and that you know human hubris takes that we can kind of you know with our technological 
inventions survive without the insects and uh, the trees who actually provide you know the air and the plants and the food that we need so i think i think they're all kind of part of this kind of dysfunction between humans and the earth but yeah in terms of eco anxiety there's kind of two strands of that isn't there there's the people at the front line of climate chaos you know even in britain with the flooding who are already suffering you know, mental health problems that, you know, are spreading around the world. We've seen the scale of that now in Australia and and the Amazon and, you know, these things are only going to increase. And then other people who are kind of having eco-anxiety and fear of the future. And what I found was I also fell into a state of ecological grief as I reconnected with nature. But I also found, and I still do today, that the antidote to that is to go back to nature you know it is to kind of I spend time with the trees and, and go bird watching and and take my my daughter out um you know into the wild and kind of plant trees or be involved in kind of community collective action in order to try and do something to help in some small way yeah but the small ways add up don't they I mean that's always that's always the thing I feel like we always think we're so powerless but actually like every little impact totally. every little thing has a genuine impact yeah and look at like Greta and the school strikes and you know that I feel like there has been a real consciousness change and what I hope and actually what my research for losing Eden kind of suggested to me was like the separation of physical mental and mental health and, and kind of separating social factors from that just doesn't really make sense like the biopsychosocial model of healthcare especially in the context of kind of our relationship with the environment, just makes so much sense. Like, you know, more and more we realise how you know, air pollution, of course, is affecting our physical health, but it's also, you know, like rates of, for example, like I think psychosis is higher around areas of polluted air. You know, all these, it's all interconnected. And I'm hoping that this research field, which I look at, will lead to a bit of an, an opening of the doors in that way. Yeah, it was interesting as well on that sense of pollution that you said, and it makes complete sense. And I have to be honest, I'd never even thought about it before. Like, I'm, you know, all the kind of gut health experts say, you know, you should eat 30 different plant-based foods a week because that's really good for your gut microbiome and diversity and strengthening your well-being and all the rest of it. And I'm always thinking about those sorts of things, like if I had different nuts and different lentils and like different seeds and things. But then, obviously, I live in central London. I work in central London. I'm on the tube every single day. I walk down Oxford Street, which is like one of the most polluted streets every mm-hmm. day. And, you know, as you said, like the gut microbiota of people who live in urban areas and developed countries in general are less biodiverse than those of people who still have a profound and kind of daily contact with the natural world, which, again, is really scary. And it's really interesting because we're always thinking about those like basic things like let me have my kale salad. Like, <laughs> I'll just plug into a meditation. And then I think we're so often missing those like big health factors right in front of us. It's kind of screamingly obvious, like inhaling fumes all day, every day, isn't necessarily the best thing for our body. So true. I think that kind of speaks to the idea that um, there's this amazing American ecologist called Paul Shepard who said something like we think our, you know, our skins are kind of porous, but actually, you know, we're the epidermis of the human body is like it's almost like a forest you know we have these microorganisms who live within us you know they even live on our faces and they're um we know more and more about how they interact with our our brains and our and our mental health we're not alone we have creatures who live inside us and and as you're saying the diversity of microorganisms around us absolutely impact on our health and our moods one of the first things i 
I started looking at was the microbacteria in the soil. Because mm. I moved out of London while I was writing this book and I got an allotment and I just got so into it and I felt so good after plunging my hands deep in soil. And, you know, at first I kind of thought this must be about growing food and being outside and that kind of magic of growing. It's like, like if you've ever grown potatoes, it's like finding treasure. It's like unbelievably cool. But then I saw something on a Facebook group and someone has talked about like uh, the antidepressant like effects of soil. And I thought that Mm, that sounds sounds wishy-washy yeah, it sounds wishy-washy but I looked into it and I um I interviewed a few of the leading experts in the area and and I found out that there is a species of bacteria in the soil called M. vacai and in studies it's been shown to have antidepressant like effects and stimulate the brain to create more serotonin which led one of the leading experts Dr. Christopher Lowry to say we should all be spending more time in the dirt so you know well now since that point now I know through, through doing my research like when I have soil on my hands or my little daughter's covered in mud you know I know that there's that there are these tiny tiny creatures in there which might be you know making us feel happier and yeah I just think that's remarkable and it's kind of the antithesis of the cleanliness of the modern world where we like love to detol spray everything and yeah. like remove you know and we've we've touched on that on kind of episodes on the gut and things but it's just interesting again how i think so often we just don't see all these aspects of our health linked together but actually like they're so fundamentally linked it's unbelievable exactly and i but i think it's kind of cultural isn't it like when i was researching forest schools and outdoor nurseries and there is like a really exciting growing movement of trying to get kids outside to yeah. kind of counteract this kind of creeping you know shutting them all indoors and like a lot of the forest school practitioners said to me that there is this feeling that mud is dirty and like, you know, parents might just don't want their kids to get covered in soil and mud. You know, it's kind of seen as like, you know, out there, not us. Obviously, kids love love playing in mud. But I think that also speaks to this sense that, you know, as as humans, we're disconnected from the earth and what we do and, and how we live isn't in relation to to other the rest of nature and you know the climate crisis is showing that it is you know in major major ways but also in these in these health ways we are overlooking that the soil that we've evolved in these bacteria these old friends as you know they're called that we've evolved with over millennia you know we need them yeah there was one study that you included which i thought was absolutely kind of astonishing which was after a certain illness, patients with views of trees had shorter post-operative hospital stays, fewer negative evaluative comments from nurses, as well as slightly lower scores for complications than those that didn't have views of trees, which I thought was just like kind of mind-blowing and almost hard to believe that that tiny difference or something you would think had no relation whatsoever to something kind of hospital based could really be true totally so that is one of the kind of major studies that was one of the earliest studies done by this guy roger ulrich who's kind of the don of like healthcare and and nature research and yeah i mean he he conceded that a brick wall probably isn't as exciting as looking at something beautiful like you know there are obviously beautiful cityscapes that you could be looking at um but you know the evidence was was unequivocal that you know these people were getting better and they were their moods were different because of looking out onto a tree and i think actually 
Ulrich himself had suffered from kidney disease in his teenage years and he'd considered his view of a pine tree while he was bedridden to have aided his recovery. And in fact, that's something that Florence Nightingale used to write about as well. And you know what? In a way, we kind of know it, don't we? Like, we bring flowers to people yes. if they're unwell. Although I don't think you can actually do that so much anymore. They don't like no, it. No, I'm not sure you're allowed to. I don't think you're allowed to, exactly. But, but that's and, how we say thank you, it isn't is, it? It is, exactly. Like you know, and so there is part of us that kind of intuitively, you know, we... We associate nature with with healing and certainly Ulrich had influence because he worked with the NHS over years and you know you do see in hospitals and healthcare buildings a bit of nature but I think in this country certainly it's not quite enough like there's this hospital in Singapore called Kutek Pratt Hospital and it's really radical idea where they integrate forest like nature and with an understanding that while their patients and staff need the natural world for their healing and recovery, they also need to conserve and protect species. So there is 83 species of butterfly living in the grounds of the hospital and anyone in the community can visit the hospital as well and you know enjoy nature. And the balconies are kind of filled with scented flowers and plenty of natural light. And this biophilic design has been cited as the reason it's preferred to, to the other older hospitals. So that's an example of a kind of biophilic city and biophilic design incorporating nature. And Roger Ulrich's study was between 1972 and 1981. And yes, it has had influence, that study. You know, it, ha- it is probably the most cited study in the no- nature health um, kind of nexus. But we're still not quite incorporating nature into healthcare. I mean, it's still seen as a bit of a fringe area. You know, there is... The area of ecotherapy is growing, but I think generally we still think that contact with nature is a kind of like nice extra frill, you know, like an add-on yeah, rather than something central to good mental health. It's so interesting. I mean, somehow all four episodes that I've been researching, we've basically ended up in all completely different topics, but have basically ended up in the exact same place which is about the brain and mood and so much about mental health because obviously this is like one of the biggest problems facing the world today, like diseases of the brain and increasingly alarming problems with our mental health, especially among the young. It's just kind of feels like it's getting out of control. And the thing that's so interesting, and this isn't to belittle it by any means, it's so serious and I've seen lots of friends and family struggle with it and I appreciate that. 100% I had a few kind of challenges with it myself and and definitely one after Sky as well so I really don't mean to belittle it at all but it is just so interesting because we look so much at the big picture and we look at all the drugs and we focus so much on that and at the same time we have so much evidence about all the little things we can do and I'm not saying that little things are going to be all and end all and it's going to change anything in a 24-hour period there is no magic bullet for anything as you said that's what you looked for initially Mm. and like it doesn't exist it'll never exist probably with anything but yeah we are understanding that like exercise makes a big difference how we eat makes a big difference getting outside makes a big difference and yet 
basically we're not doing it. We're so busy. We're so kind of, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for this. But yet we have time. I think you said kids today spent over four hours a day on a screen. So it's like we do have time to play video games and we do have time to spend, gosh knows how long, like scrolling Instagram, stalking like our cousin's cat's girlfriend, <laughs> like, you know, ending up so, in so many weird places. And we, we have time to drink and we have time to do all this, but we don't have time to kind of nurture those basic needs and it just I guess to me it's just starting to feel really sad when the science is out there and yet we keep dismissing it it's kind of wishy-washy and weird and like you know you're like a tree hugger yeah a kind of a bit of a strange like left field kind of person for talking about the fact that like nature can be like genuinely healing and not healing in a kind of alternative sense like actually kind of mentally and physically healing yeah and it's frustrating in so many ways to be like faced with these serious, serious, serious issues, especially in the UK where the NHS is so beloved and struggling so much, and we can all see that so, so clearly, that we're not doing these, like, free things to try and make ourselves feel better. Yeah. I think that's so interesting what you say about the tree hugger image. Like, yeah. I was thinking the other day about how, like, when I was growing up, do you remember, like, that guy Swampy in, like, Newbury was, like, in a... There was, like... I think it was, like, the Newbury bypass. There were all these hippie people... And there was this guy Swampy who was kind of like a bit seen a bit as a bit of a joke. I remember Prince Charles was being like dissed for talking to his plants. And I feel like that kind of seeing like environmentalism as like a bit cringe and a bit yeah. like left field, it it's so different to like the very serious scientists who I have been talking to over the last few years. These are people who are like really serious physicians and like psychiatrists and and you know studying this relationship but still environmentalism and the idea of nature as an important thing for wellness is seen as a bit of a kind of wishy-washy idea I mean I think that there are so many issues in like our late capitalist end times aren't there and you know mental health is so complex and I mean I I would say that you know in my periods of mental illness over the past psychiatry and psychotherapy and my support of my friends and family has been really crucial but contact with nature and contact with nature I would not advocate as a cure-all yeah of course it maintains my mental health so I find that I have to go out you know I live in an urban area I'm not going into kind of like the wilds every day and you know now I've done the research so I understand why it works but just going into a green space kind of daily kind of can maintain my mental health and it's so easy to overlook that, isn't it? There's so much to distract us and we're so also busy, like you say, and kind of... I feel like there's an element of denial as well often with these things because it's easier not to, because it's easier to sit on the tube and it's easier to sit on the bus than it is to maybe get up like half an hour earlier and walk um, yeah. and try and walk through some kind of green space on the way. And I think it, it's the same. It's like, we don't have time to cook and we don't have time to do this. And it's just, and I so appreciate it. Like we run a business, we have a tiny, we're currently moving house. Like I, I get it. We are so busy. I mess this up all the time, but I think it's just, it's just interesting that if we can make time for these things, it's quite plausible. They could have like a profound impact in the long term yeah. on our like actual health, which ultimately is what we all want good health because we all want to be here. We all want to be on this planet. Hopefully if the planet's here for us. Exactly. And I think that, like, in my research, I looked at this concept of equigenesis, which was, I think, actually one of the most surprising and, in a way, kind of beautiful areas that I learned about. And that is an idea 
by a professor called Richard Mitchell. So Professor Mitchell at Glasgow University's research suggests that greener neighbourhoods that offer a connection with nature might actually reduce the health gap between rich and poor and lead to a better, more equal society. So he did a study that was published in The Lancet in 2008, which found that it was possible for greener neighbourhoods to mitigate the negative effects of income deprivation on health. Um, potential benefits of nature connections seem more powerful to the researchers for people who are from poorer backgrounds and under more stress. So, you know, this has kind of serious consequences for like government and policymakers and the people who are kind of making decisions about access to nature and, and kind of programming in parks, because if nature can reduce that inequality gap which is a stain on our society I mean that seems like a really really big deal to me you know I might have said before nature isn't for everybody or maybe only individuals who kind of have grown up with nature might benefit from it but you know that evidence is just kind of unequivocal about how it you know more nature more access to nature would improve society and like the you know the the worst parts of our society which is inequality yeah, it's kind of equal parts fascinating and frustrating, isn't it? But anyone listening to this thinking, gosh, this is kind of really profound, actually. Like, there again, it's just looking at all those small ways that we can help improve the health and happiness of our lives and the lives of those around us on a day to day basis. Like, how do you make small, realistic changes? Because obviously, as we said, like, everyone's busy. We so appreciate the fact that, like, modern life is stressful. People have jobs and kids and hobbies and commitments left, right, and center. First of all, how much do we need like is that evidence saying you know we need two hours or you know whatever else and then how do you have any kind of recommendations about how you start to actually try and implement some of this into a, a kind of realistic life in a realistic sense sure so there are various different studies looking at dosage yeah and like what a do good dose of nature looks like there's a ton of studies that were done around the practice of forest bathing in japan by a scientist called Dr. Lee. And just to confirm, forest bathing is not wild swimming or anything like that. It's literally just going into a forest and kind of being in nature and soaking that up without being on your phone or anything else. Yeah, so forest bathing is getting out into nature or forest or woodland and engaging the five senses. So kind of tasting the fresh geosmin on your tongue which is the smell of earth after rain listening out for bird song touching um, the plants the leaves or the bark of a tree looking for different colors so, so being really present in nature yeah. basically yeah being really present really mindful and this this guy dr king lee found so much evidence to suggest that this has benefits so he found that the forest boosted the immune system by increasing the number of natural killer cells he found that Psychological benefits include decreased level of anxiety, depression, fatigue, and increased vigor and energy. If you want to decrease your stress, go to the forest is basically what he said. But he also says you should be there for at least two hours. That's quite a long time. I think that in terms of small changes people can make, my research has suggested to me that even if you're not someone who's like obsessed with David Attenborough documentaries or like go, wants to go tree climbing on the weekend... If you maybe had the opportunity to take a route to work or, you know, wherever you're going, that's through like a tree-lined avenue or through a park, you know, that 
it's going to have potentially therapeutic benefits for you. Something that helped me was a kind of, it's almost like a radical noticing. So kind of like slowing down, which actually I was, I was lucky that, you know, having a young child really helped me do that, kind of get down on the ground and look at the spiders and mm. and look and see what was going on. But I think, you know, if you if you start looking to see what, what's going on, looking at the plants, looking at the, you know, the lichen and the you know, all the different ecosystems that live around us, then you can kind of benefit from that. So ultimately at the moment there's not one clear prescription other than the fact that we know that some is better than none. Yes. And I mean, obviously, humans are all really different. And you know, I, I interviewed a lot of ecotherapists and doctors working in this field. And, you know, if you're someone who you know, has had a bad experience in a wood, going to like a woodland or being like told to go to woodland by a doctor is not going to be a good idea. Or like, you know, if you're someone who suffers with like OCD, maybe like, as one academic said to me, like, doing a litter pick on a beach is not going to be something that you find therapeutic so there's not like one size fits all yeah you know there are lots of like minority groups which find countryside or parks hostile or unwelcoming so the experience is different for different demographics different people the overwhelming evidence is that something some contact with nature is going to benefit every single person on this planet yes and without it we suffer Without, you know, conversely, the disconnection, the like winnowing green spaces, the decreasing of biodiversity. So, you know, the more biodiversity of birdsong, for example, studies show that, you know, that increases your stress recovery. You know, you mentioned like the species decline, you know, it's all interconnected. So if you were going to give our listeners three things to remember from today's episode, three take-homes, what would they be? So if you smell the earth after it's rain, do you know what I mean? That yeah, smell? it's delicious. Yeah, like geosmin is the, the name for the compound. You know, when it's rained and the, you can just smell the earth, it's incredible. Now that smell activates areas of the brain linked with calmness and relaxation. So definitely like sniff that smell if you ever if you next time you smell it um secondly seek out moments of awe and wonder so the science of of awe um looks a lot at how moments of awe wonder and beauty in nature um can impact our health so they can promote healthier levels of an inflammation biomarker which is a pretty big deal for our, our physical and mental health so seeking awe through like a waterfall or even for me like I love taking my pocket microscope out and looking in like the lichen and the moss for little creatures you know that's awesome to me those things aren't luxuries or thrills they're things that have like an actual measurable impact on our health if you're a keen gardener or you like just kind of planting or being out and about in the soil you might like to know about the species of bacteria which is found in the soil which is found to impact the brain and increase our stress resilience, uh, you know, which explains why we might have a buzz after gardening. Yeah, and I think also if we feel, if anyone's feeling ecological grief and eco-anxiety, which I think is increasing, I would say that collective action, and I did some tree planting the other day, and it just made me feel so much better just getting together with people to kind of try and make a difference. And like you said earlier, it's easy to think we're powerless, but 
we're not and we can kind of fight and fight for nature and that, that can that can help amazing well thank you so much lucy i thank honestly you. i was reading your book this morning again and i was like i'm gonna walk home from this i'm gonna uh-huh. get outside cool. and i'm gonna do exactly that thank you so much for thank everything you. today Thanks so much. lucy's book is losing eden i'll pop it in the show notes below and again with all the details for delicious yellow live in may and june this year have a lovely day everyone we will be back again next week and my co-host matthew mills will be back with me thanks so much bye <laughs>